Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the mythical beginnings of tea in ancient China, and followed its introduction to Europe from curiosity to obsession with the British taking to the drink so strongly that it threatened their economy and led to war with China. Today, we'll pick up with those wars before looking at tea cultivation in India and beyond. Let's begin. We're here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. Hi, and we've been talking... About tea, but about a lot of stuff other than just tea. Yeah, it's gotten Opium kind of wars and all kinds of madness. Ranging, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, last time we last time we talked, uh, we ended off with the opium wars kind of kicking off. Yep. And I uh, number one wasn't expecting it to go here when we first picked the topic, uh, <laughs> but number two don't really want to get too deep into the opium wars. Yeah, that can kind of be its own oh, like goodness. whole separate topic for sure yeah. easily. And, and there's some and there's some decent po- podcasts out there that uh, that take on the opium wars as well. I mean, mm-hmm. there's plenty of good resources, and I don't have time to cover it very well uh, <laughs> and still stick to the story of tea. So Fair we'll enough. probably leave it relatively brief in terms of the opium wars, but we should talk about what exactly is going on here. As you'll remember, the British had essentially started exporting opium into the Chinese market as a way to, in a roundabout manner, pay for the country's tea addiction. I mean, there had been too much silver flowing out of the country into China, and they wanted to reverse that flow of of precious metals and uh, and found that opium was the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. Last time when we ended, um, there was a, uh, a Chinese minister, uh, or a viceroy actually, Lin Zhezhu, who seized 1,300 tons of opium and destroyed it. I think I said a... Uh, like $60 million worth or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah $60 million in today's US dollars. I think I said he burned it. He didn't actually burn it. That was a that was a mistake on my part. I'm sure uh, people have written me emails by the time this episode comes out, but um, I'll I'll go on the record. No, I, I think that was I think that was incorrect. No, what he did was he mixed it with salt and lime, okay, and uh, and and dumped seawater in it. So basically rendered it completely you know, incredibly poisonous and more or less inaccessible in like a, a, a usable form. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, not not burned. That would be a kind of a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the opium wars are this this funny thing because a lot of people in Britain sort of recognized that the opium wars themselves weren't necessarily the most just war, I suppose you could say, that there was a lot of really unsavory motivation behind why they were going to war with China. Because, you know, the right of the Chinese government to control the trade of opium wasn't actually being opposed here. The specific complaint that the British had against uh, the Chinese government was this destruction of British property without 
proper compensation. They they felt that if uh, if British merchants were having their their property seized, sometimes in international waters. I mean, it wasn't just opium that had already made it to China proper. They were going and seizing uh, ships that were that were in international waters where technically the opium wasn't illegal yet. Then they were taking British citizens, bringing them back to China, and imprisoning them there. Oh, nice. So. <laughs> You can understand why the Chinese were so upset about the whole, the whole situation. Yeah. But obviously they were still definitely overstepping their bounds in terms of just international law. Which, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. When we're talking about 1840s is kind of a hazy concept, mm-hmm. but still, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that they, they maybe went a little bit above and beyond to enforce Chinese law. But as I said, no no one was actually disputing the, or at least at this point in time, they weren't disputing the Chinese government's um, right to declare opium illegal. As far as they were concerned, though, when the East India Company was selling this this opium from India, I I mean, it wasn't actually East Indian, uh, East India Company ships that were sailing to China carrying Mm -hmm. this opium. They were uh, selling it in these big bazaars these markets in, in yeah. calcutta and and the these small merchants were ferrying it across for a markup that way the east india company which was a government chartered uh company was never directly like directly responsible or directly yeah yeah, yeah. culpable but still they're looking to protect british citizens in all of this and yeah for sure. and when you have that amount of property destroyed and that many british citizens questionably arrested they, they kind of have no choice but to do something about it and yeah the the consequence was going to war it's a it's mainly a, a naval uh war i mean there's there's plenty of ground action as well but i mean this is the 1840s and this is britain we're talking about mm-hmm. it shines at sea that's that's kind of it's kind of where it uh, where it excels you know the royal navy was employing uh steamships for just about the first time in in actual uh combat scenarios i mean not uh, 30 years before this, we're talking about the Napoleonic Wars with tall ships and things like that. It's very much the age of sail still, right. but this is the first time you see steamships starting to come up in the Royal Navy. British troops are being outfitted with mainly rifles for the first time. I mean, okay. um, th- there were rifles uh, used in the po- Napoleonic Wars, but there were like they were small crack troops oh, okay. mixed in yeah the majority of the troops were still using muskets mm-hmm. so you've, you're starting to see like this this modernization of the the british military during the opium wars fast forward three years of military action because again that's not really what we're here to talk <laughs> about but the the british forces managed to take shanghai and force the chinese to sign the treaty of nanking uh, in august 1842 and this is the first of what's known as the unequal treaties which i know you've come across before but we also talked about it a little bit in uh, in the the episode we did about the Meiji Restoration in the in the context of the Americans uh, sailing into Edo Harbor and, and forcing mm-hmm. the Japanese into trade negotiations. The whole idea of of the the unequal treaties as a as a body there were there were a number of them, but the whole point of it was they they were super one sided, just like the name says. Yeah, uh, they were basically <laughs> using what's called gunboat diplomacy and and using their military superiority to force various Asian nations into really unfavorable treaties. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just talking like tariffs are a little a little one sided or anything. No, th- the end of the first Opium War meant that the entire island of Hong Kong was ceded to the British. Oh, good. Uh, as reparations, you know, I, and I mean, yeah, okay, so it was sixty million dollars of opium. Is Hong Kong worth sixty million dollars? <laughs> I feel like they got a raw deal there. Yeah. 
the opening of ports that hadn't been previously available to British merchants, like Japan more famously did. China only really opened a, a small number of ports to European traders to try and control the flow of European goods into and out of the country. Right. So they opened up more uh, more ports to allow for uh, more trade and for less regulated trade. Let's face it. That's the yeah. That's the sure. goal there. Yeah. Uh, renegotiated tariffs more favorably for Britain. So. That basically means that they forced the Chinese to take tariffs off of British goods, meaning that they could sell them in China at a more favorable rate, which starts to kind of tip the balance of trade in China in favor of Britain, which is is something that you haven't seen happen to China in basically any point in, in its in its history, other than maybe a few uh, notable exceptions. But for the most part, it's been such a strong economic power that it really hasn't been in such a a vulnerable position before it's it's really a new thing mm-hmm. um and the terms of these treaties are are so bad for china and this is such a new thing for china that this is actually referred to uh in the 20th century by the the communist party or the communist chinese government as a century of humiliation beginning with the opium wars oh wow um keep in mind that the the chinese communist revolution that that civil war starts in 1945 and, and continues into 1950 mm-hmm, yeah. um, so almost exactly 100 years in, in their estimation of of uh, humiliation at the t- at the hands of the west mainly britain yeah it was devastating for them in in multiple ways not just economically but also in terms yeah of- i can see that having been like such an ancient like civilization that's you know so much older and used mm-hmm. to being more powerful in certain regards and well yeah not 20 or 30 years before this the chinese emperor was refusing to meet dignitaries from european countries uh as equals they were forced to kowtow right like it was it was very much a an unforgiving and and dominant uh geopolitical position Mm -hmm. um this is a this is a big deal for china and and not in a good way also there's this whole thing in there that british citizens are given special consideration under chinese law right um which is like there's been a lot of other egregious stuff in the unfair in the unequal treaties but like the idea that that citizens of another country are just exempt from certain laws or given different punishment for certain laws is to today's sensibilities just seems like really really bad like that's like that's outrageous come on yeah um not biased at all (laughs) yeah no kidding there's a supplementary treaty in 1844 that explicitly recognizes britain as a political equal so it's completely erasing that position of superiority Mm -hmm. uh, that China's held for thousands of years. There is a second opium war. It starts up in 1856. A lot of the stuff that was uh, there in the first place with the first opium war just kind of simmered under the surface the rest of the time. You don't put that level of punishment on a country without it creating quite a bit of resentment. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But on the other hand, there was also Britain who was looking to get even more out of China than they were already getting, which frankly is just greedy mm-hmm. um so another another war 1856 to 1860 this one started over a really interesting little incident um wars have this way of starting over like these really small incidents that are really just kind of used as excuses yeah, yeah they do yeah. there was this british ship called the arrow and uh the arrow had been a pirate ship at one point it had been seizing other vessels and taking their cargo and and engaged in real honest-to-goodness piracy. The ship was captured by the British Navy. The owners of it were, were arrested and punished. And then the Royal Navy auctioned off the ship. It's it's kind of like a, a police auction where you can go down and buy a you know a 1987 Honda Civic for yeah. 
for 500 bucks or whatever because it was <laughs> running drugs or something like that. Yeah. Somebody bought the arrow and uh, started using it again as a, as a merchant ship, completely legitimately running goods into uh, and out of China. Mm-hmm. The Chinese government still had the arrow registered on a list of pirate vessels. So they kidnapped the crew of the, well, they arrested the crew of the arrow. And the British government went, this is outrageous. How could you treat <laughs> British citizens this way? It's kind of like, okay, well, this is, you know, in different times, this is just an understandable mistake. Get things cleared up. Have your diplomats talk to their yeah. embassy. Yeah, you just get, you smooth, it, smooth it over. Yeah. That wasn't the climate that, w- that, that existed in <laughs> the 1850s between Britain and China. They were looking for another excuse to go around, too. Yeah. So war is declared. Uh, the French get involved this time because they have, uh, you know, they've started their own imperial operations in the South Pacific. They've got interests in uh, in Vietnam specifically, but but a number of other South Asian nations. Mm-hmm. And they're setting up their own unequal treaties with various nations. At this point, uh, the United States has started with their their uh, opening of Japan. They're all over the place. This is this is becoming quite trendy in this part of the world. And again, this ends with a, a British victory. We don't have to go through the entire campaign or anything like that. But the real consequence of this was the opening of even more ports, the legalization of opium, the forced legalization of opium, which was basically a way of Britain going, you know what? Like, we're really just, we, we just want your money. <laughs> like, that's all they're saying here. This yeah. is a this is an indirect tax on the entire Chinese nation because they're saying you're not allowed to arrest people for using what is under your laws an illicit substance. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, our trade in this illicit substance is not to be interrupted. Just egregious. <laughs> Massive reparations payments were, were due to uh, Britain as well as, as France. And they forced uh, freedom of religion on China, which is mm. really just a, a pretext for forcing them to accept Christian yeah. uh, missionaries into the country. Yeah. And the legalization of indentured servitude was put in place. There were actually protections against indentured servitude at this point in China. Oh, and really? Britain asked for those to be removed. <laughs> so social progress all around, I suppose. Yay. Goodness. <laughs> Britain, come on, man. Like... <laughs> It's just, it's just do better than that. Bad. <laughs> Our topic here is tea, and you know the the fact of the matter is there there has been tea coming out of out of China all of this time, but tea production suffers for a number of reasons. First of all, warfare is never good for trade. No, if you've got people tied up in fighting a war, your trade is going to suffer. That's just the long and short of it. There are embargoes that are put on China throughout the war uh, periods. There are embargoes put on Chinese products uh, when Britain is trying to put pressure on them to renegotiate tariffs or to legalize opium or, you know, what have you. Besides, after the the victory in the first opium war, there's this kind of, hmm, how to put it best. The mid-19th century is probably Britain's most, like, arrogant period of all time. Mm -hmm. And... There's a number of periods that could probably give it a run for its money, but this is a this is an empire that stood up to Britain so many times in the past successfully. Yeah. Um, to the point where it almost brought it to economic crisis through the tea trade. Britain kind of wanted to ruin its economy. Mm-hmm. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> and I mean, not everybody was on board with this. Again, I need to be very clear that this was extremely contentious. There were very prominent ministers who were completely against the idea of the opium wars. They saw it for exactly what it was, which was um, 
essentially state-sponsored highway uh, yeah. robbery. Yeah. And a lot of them objected to the fact that they were forcing another nation to legalize uh, a narcotic because even at this point in time when you know you could walk down to the the, the pharmacy and, and pick up some cocaine mm-hmm. uh, there were people in in society who saw that especially opiate addiction could be incredibly destructive oh yeah and didn't feel comfortable with the idea of their government tearing down regulations against the use of opiates mm-hmm. I and and for very good reason like this is a this is a very real thing the, the the consequences of that level of substance abuse is isn't isn't trivial and and the fact that there were people who were willing to stand up and say so is to their credit but ultimately as a as a nation they weren't the voices that prevailed and that's yeah. kind of too bad it is yeah and it's too bad the effects of opiate addiction on the general public also really hurt tea production in that uh, usage and abuse of opium was so widespread that you saw a marked uh, decrease in like like GDP, like overall national production mm, a- wow. across the board. Yeah, it, it was a it was a serious problem. That's huge. And to then turn around and, and force China to legalize it when they were having that many problems with an illegal opium trade was that much more devastating. And and the tea trade was one of the places that production really really suffered it's always been a very manual process it's 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 people walking through manually pruning the tea trees manually plucking the two leaves in a bud mm-hmm. um it, it's you know, the whole process is is quite labor intensive and when you have so many people that are unable to function at a, a normal level due to addiction something that 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 is that labor intensive that that manpower intensive something that requires like that much concentration and focus and like stamina Mm -hmm. to to keep going Mm -hmm. it really hurts problems and so i don't think anyone in britain by the time you get to especially to the second opium war I think I think everyone really realized that the age of chinese tea was over at least for the time being because really how do you how do you go forward from there how do you how do you pick up a the, the level of trade that they had been doing with China, both at the low prices that they had come to expect and at the volume they had come to expect with the level of trust that they had come to uh, create mm-hmm. in this trade, you know, through through the intermediary of the East India Company, but still with 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 China. Mm-hmm. For a lot of people, the answer was uh, India. We'll roll back the clock a little bit on on India. For a long time, it was thought that tea was from China, and that's where tea grew. And you know, there were a couple of other places that grew it, but yeah, you know, it had been successfully it was exported. A Chinese, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. It had been sex- successfully exported to to Japan, but you had to go to China to buy it, or or maybe Japan, but they weren't producing at the same level, and it wasn't the same type of tea that the the British people were used to. Mm-hmm. But there was even starting in the late 18th century, this movement towards, well, why do we have to go all the way to China to get this tea? Mm-hmm. In As early as 1793, there was a, a Lord McCartney who received some tea plants as a gift and brought it back to India and figured, well, this is approximately the same climate. Maybe maybe I'll be able to get this to, to grow here. And and the, the trees themselves didn't weren't viable they, they they all failed but he was able okay. to harvest some seeds and and kind of um start a small nursery full okay. of 
of tea trees, but it was a very small operation for quite some time. Yeah, like not enough to meet demand or anything. Not in the slightest. However, the East India Company had spent, you know, the past basically 150 years slowly taking control over pieces of India. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about last time, it started out as these little outposts or these little bits of land that they had purchased or had been gifted from local rulers. Uh, but they had expanded over time, slowly and slowly, but quickly enough that by the time you get to the 19th century, Britain owned, or, or rather the, the East India Company, owned as much as uh, half of the landmass of India. Uh, it was still technically Indian. It, it, it was this weird arrangement. It's, it's politically still under Indian control. It's subject to Indian laws. But in a lot of places, it was the East India Company who was functionally administrating areas mm-hmm. or even like entire towns, entire, mm-hmm. entire regions. Wow. And the East India Company wasn't technically part of the British government. So the like, so Britain wasn't directly overseeing any parts of India, but the East India Company got its charter from the British government right. in order to exist. Okay. And so it's this weird, it's not under British law, but it's more <laughs> or less British uh, control and and what is this whole arrangement kind of thing, it's right? British, yeah. And <laughs> um, it, it ends up kind of being, like the, the real answer to it ends up being whatever seems to work best for the East India Company when... It suited them to work under British rules. They worked under British rules. When it suited them to work under Indian rules, they did that. And everything that they were doing was about turning a profit because that's what they were. They're a corporation. They're there to make money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what they're doing there is is facilitating trade of spices, dyes, things like that. By the time you get to the year 1800, you're looking at the opium production that we've been talking about, the tea trade back from from China. It's it's all centralized in India and administrated through Calcutta. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being this kind of almost extranational government mm-hmm. corporation hybrid yeah. thing, which is kind of a dangerous thing. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime that ends up happening, it sort of gets a little bit hairy. Because... You can kind of see how things might start to go wrong. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you, you, you run into issues of accountability. You run into issues of you know, what their, what their mandate is, right? Because government is this funny thing where, you know, we all kind of agree that we need somebody running the show. But when you look at what a government is supposed to do, it's supposed to provide services and support for its citizens, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what a company's mandate is. A company's mandate is to make as much profit as possible. Yeah. And those two things are often diametrically opposed. Not always, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not often that they're necessarily aligning for... Um, the same actions to to meet those two different goals. Yeah. And I feel like in a situation like that, too, you'd be prone to kind of discovering loopholes for all kinds of criminal activity or, you know, oh, absolutely. whatnot. So I kind of feel like it's almost like just like a, a house of cards in a way. Well, the, the really what the problem comes down to is what is criminal activity? Yeah. Like, how is that defined within that kind of a setup? Yeah. Are people living under... East India Company rule in India, mm-hmm. are they subject to Indian law? Are they subject to British law? Are exactly. they subject to both? Yeah. Uh, are they subject to neither? Are they subject to whichever the people who are citing some sort of rules prefer at that moment in time? Mm-hmm. Um, are they subjected to none of them? Because 
they, you know, the Indian government has essentially, or, or what you could call an Indian government, which is really a, a patchwork of, of various local rulers at this point, it's not really a centralized thing, but, you know, have they ceded so much control without there being actual British governmental control uh, put in place that there really is no government there whatsoever? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's very, very That's messy. really hard to navigate. This is the India that exists at the beginning of the Opium Wars. But if you'll remember back in 1834, just five years before the Opium Wars uh, begin, the East India Company loses its governmental charter, mm-hmm. um, at least in terms of, of sales to China. That's when uh, you start getting all of these independents that were bringing opium into China themselves. The East India Company still existed in India proper, but that loss of charter meant that they were cut off from their tea revenue. Ah. Now, they were still selling opium into China through these intermediaries. Mm-hmm. But in terms of selling back to Britain, which they'd very much like to do, you know, they can really only rebuy from merchants who are buying in China and reselling in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. So they had to look for new ways to retain dominance over the market. And the way they went about that is establishing what they called the Tea Committee. Very straightforward name. (laughs) They were really hoping to directly supplant the Chinese market, just cut China out of the equation altogether. Things have gotten way too weird over there. (laughs) The company has no direct control whatsoever. Forget about China. Who needs China? (laughs) And so they start these um, expeditions throughout India trying to find places that they can grow tea. And they're taking uh, little saplings with them, trying to grow tea trees in various places. But also they've heard these rumors that there is tea in India. They've found bushes here and there. And mostly what we're talking about here is tea that would have been planted potentially hundreds of years before mm-hmm. for the purposes of medicine and you know potentially grown wild from there. But they were convinced that there was uh, an Indian tea. Yeah. Surprisingly enough, they actually found native tea plants in India in a province called Assam. It, it's the most northeastern portion of India. You know okay. how you know how up in in the northeast of India, there's Bangladesh kind of cuts into yeah. India, mm-hmm. and then just east of that, there's another kind of it widens out a little bit. Right. That's Assam. Well, okay. A lot of that is Assam, anyways, and. In Assam, they actually found a, a variant of tea. It's the same species as the, the tea plant. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a slightly different variation of it, but it's still the same species. It can cross-pollinate and, and everything that same species do. Right. Um, grows a lot taller. The leaves are a little bit different. But they went, well, if, if this can grow wild here in Assam, there's no reason we can't start up tea plantations in Assam. This yeah. is perfect. And then they don't have to rely on China and exactly. for that. Keep in mind, Assam is not that far away from where we figure tea came from in the first place in yeah. China. Like this is very close to like the, the Tibetan border, right? Like it's, it's, it's yeah. very close to that Southwestern uh, area of, of China where we, we think that tea originally came from. So it's not surprising that we found it there. It's, it's not like it's, uh, you know, halfway around the world uh, yeah. magically showing up. Yeah. But the tea committee was thrilled. <laughs> they were absolutely thrilled. They started germinating Chinese tea plants there as well to see what, or which would, work a little bit better. And they found that the Chinese plants were a little bit better. They were still making a little bit better tea. And so they just started uh, growing as quickly as possible, clearing as much land as they could just to grow tea. And Assam became just a tea province. That's all they did there was grow tea. By 
1837. So this is this is two years before the war, um, uh, the Opium War specifically. They they had full plantations of tea trees uh, running constantly, and by the end of the 1840s, partially helped by the the pressures put on by the Opium Wars, they started turning their first profits. Hmm. Um, it it happened quite quickly yeah. that they managed to turn Assam into a, a fairly viable tea growing region Mm -hmm. there was also darjeeling tea um but that's a little bit rarer and it's still kind of considered like it has this little bit of a uh, mystique to it darjeeling tea is is kind of um, especially prized in quality but assam is where the bulk of this tea production is going to be coming from right they start shipping it off to to britain and british tea drinkers were enjoying uh indian tea just as much as they had enjoyed chinese tea with the nationalists overtones of the opium war possibly more mm-hmm. <laughs> um and uh and and yeah just like that with the uh with the heavy decline of china and the and the fast rise of of india india managed to supplant china right around the same time as this uh you know century of humiliation began mm-hmm. um, and and it's kind of interesting that it it happens to come at about the same time these plantations were run by basically a couple Europeans, mm-hmm. usually single men, who worked almost exclusively with local labor. So farming tea was a very, very lonely life for a lot of these guys. Right. In a lot of cases, they didn't know anyone at all that spoke the same language as them. They okay. mainly trusted locals to, you know, they would appoint a foreman and would expect him to basically manage the day-to-day running of the... Um, of the plantations mm-hmm. um and it was uh, a, a pretty difficult life for a uh, british colonial mm-hmm. i mean i wouldn't necessarily pity them all that much because what that ends up meaning is that this combination of sort of extranational status and heavy language barrier ends up leading to fairly brutal tactics used to kind of keep workers in line there's a lot of yeah i can imagine um especially physical violence at, at, at this point in time. But it's 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 really some nasty stuff. You get sort of the worst intersections of the, the height of Victorian, you know, systemic racism and and colonialism and all of this kind of coming together in, in, in the most brutal fashion, which is completely yeah. outside of British law. And, and it's kind of a terrible time to be in tea, but it it's not going to let up anytime soon. The labor they found... I mean, they really didn't want to pay the labor all that much money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the locals in Assam really weren't willing to work for the wages being as low as the British wanted to make them. Yeah. And so in most markets, that would cause wages to go up. Mm-hmm. That's not going to stop the British. <laughs> they need their cheap tea. They, they've got this fix that they need to yeah. say uh, at home. Now... Unfortunately for the plantation owners, uh, in 1807, Britain officially abolished the slave trade, so that wasn't really an option for them. Damn. Um, And in 1843, slavery itself was abolished in all of the British regions of India. Mm -hmm. Those two things are sometimes talked about as though they're the exact same thing. It's important to realize that they're not. It's only the trading of slaves that was abolished in 1807. Yeah, but that not means... the actual like use or hiring of exactly. Slaves. Well, you, yeah. yeah, you could you could keep slaves for that entire period of time. They weren't actually actively freed until 1843. So, what do you do when you want really cheap labor but aren't allowed to have slaves anymore? You kind of dress slavery up in a <laughs> slightly different outfit and call it a new thing. But 
create yourself a whole bunch of indentured servitude or indentured servants. This is the beginning of what was known as um, the coolie workforce. I should note that coolie is one of those terms that to some people will sound like kind of kind of old timey uh, racial slur. Maybe it's like, ah, that doesn't sound quite right, but like not a big deal. Mm -hmm. There are places in the world to this day where coolie is a a horrible slur. Right. Um, It's it's a very hateful word to use and it's loaded with a lot of subtext a lot of meaning so i'm probably going to stay away from it for the most part but it's one of those ones where it's like i saw like three different languages it might come from and they're all as disparate as hindi or chinese or turkish right and it's it's but how's that spelled uh it depends okay in english it's c-o-o-l-i-e Okay. Um, but in various languages, it's spelled various ways. Mm-hmm. Basically, what coolie is going to mean is low-paid, unskilled laborers. Okay. And it almost exclusively means of Asian ethnic origins. Mm-hmm. And depending when or where you are, sometimes that means Chinese. If we're talking about, for example, the, the construction of the railroads in the United States uh, in the late 19th century, or sometimes it will mean Indian, as is the case that we're we're talking about now. Right. But yeah, it's it's like I said, one of those very very loaded terms depending on on where you are. Uh, apparently, South Africa, it's especially oh, okay. Um, explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's kind of like, well, okay, so we have to pay them and we have to pay them a minimum. How can we still get these people? Uh, basically in a position where they can't refuse to work for us and we can pay them as little as possible. Yeah. They started with a few Chinese workers, but because of the wars and, and various other factors, they, they thought that Chinese workers would work out best because they would already know tea. Um, but it turned out that they really didn't want to work for these plantations. It was really difficult to transport workers uh, to Assam. You could either have them walk across the mountains which doesn't work all that well or you could bring them across in ships which is a recipe for disease and and often death so it was easier to look to other regions of of india outside of assam where in the mid-19th century there was a lot of famine like india was not doing terribly well possibly in part due to the complete lack of government support in areas controlled by the east india company Mm -hmm. um i don't have much you know, concrete to back that up, but I'm just saying it doesn't always help things uh, <laughs> when an entire subcontinent is being uh, exploited by a government-sanctioned corporation. Mm-hmm. So they would go into areas where they knew that things were not going so well, where people had very little choice about their employment or or even, you know, or or about any opportunities really given to them. The people were literally starving to death. And they were offering these people really unfavorable contracts. Generally, you were forced to sign a five-year contract to work on the same plantation Mm -hmm. at a very low wage that uh, your transportation to the plantation would be taken from your wages, putting you immediately in debt. Oh, no. And that you had to sign it before you saw the working conditions on the plantations so that when you got there, it was too late. You had already signed. That's terrible. Yes. Yeah, this is this is undeniably in 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 no gray terms exploitation of of people in in terrible situations. Yeah, and it's it's a really awful thing that they did, and you know it, it wasn't it wasn't just the the uh, the contracts that were being taken out, the living conditions that were being provided to these workers were were absolutely 
egregious. They were they were atrocious. They were packing them in like sardines in these little rooms, all the while talking about how, you know, there was something inherent about people from India that they don't crave the same amount of spaces, uh, you know, more civilized Europeans oh and blah, goodness. blah, blah, all of this, 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 you know, racist nonsense. Yeah. And, and, you know, doing things like, you know, they're, they're pulling workers from these areas that are being uh, afflicted by famine. Mm-hmm. And then, beating them to within an inch of their lives when they're not working fast enough and and calling it some sort of character flaw of, oh of their of their you know of their skin tone rather than kind of going well maybe it's because maybe you're they're, hungry maybe, maybe, like maybe you're malnourished yeah and they'll talk about well how how these workers won't want to work uh, won't want to eat for nine ten hours at a stretch they'll rather go out into the field and start working and then work all the way through until until the the end of the day and that it doesn't really bother them that's how they like it and it's kind of like are you kidding me that's a nightmare it's it's awful anyone who wasn't working uh quickly enough like i said was was beaten anyone who tried to escape uh they have a contract and they would be punished for trying to break that contract again through corporal punishment Mm -hmm. the poor living conditions poor food the uh inherent health of of these workers showing up at the plantations meant that uh, mortality rates were extremely high i believe it, most yeah. workers didn't make it to the end of their five-year contract um there were years where the mort- mortality rate of these workers was as high as 30 percent oh wow yeah um the plantation owners were hiring out agents who would hire coolies on for them and would uh dock them pay for any that 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 died um, oh. before the end of their contract to, to try and incentivize them to find healthier workers. Mm. Um, but it still didn't really solve the problem of inhumane living conditions. Yeah. Um, at the end of the five years, these workers were allowed to try and uh, were allowed to renegotiate their contracts at a more favorable rate. But most of them were so indebted uh, yeah. to the plantation owners that by the time their five years were up, if they made it that long, they weren't in a strong bargaining position to uh, to to make more money because they owed so much to the uh, the plantation owners. Yeah. Really, the only way out of this situation is to somehow manage to end your five years without being in debt, which was very difficult to do. Yeah. And then you could walk away, or sometimes, if you really wanted to, make it much better money than you were making before that. But not a lot of them decided to take that route for obvious reasons (laughs) can't say i'd blame them you also have a number of these plantation owners looking to either female workers or the uh the wives or daughters of workers who came up as companions i mean again they're single men that that don't understand the language they're alone and and this was in some ways uh encouraged by the company yeah um there was a there was a slang term for these mistresses within the company. Uh, they were called sleeping dictionaries. Uh, oh my god! They were helpful because they would help you learn the language. Uh huh. Yeah, it's 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 yeah. <laughs> oh my god! I need a shower. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah yeah it's 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 terrible it's terrible but it, the the company considered it a, a good way to learn about the people learn the language and once you know the language to better be able to motivate your workers it's kind of a twisted logic but okay (laughs) yeah the the worst part the worst part is you can kind of see the the core of it and yet the only way that it even remotely works is if you completely ignore you know any aspects of exploitation that are exactly yeah absolutely a part of this arrangement and there's no getting around that and so you you're also 
looking at something which is is barely reported, but almost certainly a, a widespread incidence of, of uh, sexual violence as well oh, for on sure. these plantations. It's, it's okay, sure, slavery is technically illegal in, in, uh, in India, but please explain to me how this level of indentured servitude is any better. Yeah, for sure. Just, just terrible conditions. And through all of this, India continues to export more and more tea to get higher and higher yields out of the, uh, the plants that are, uh, that are grown there. Uh, the British public love this cheap tea. They have no idea where it comes from. How could they? Mm-hmm. To them, tea is just a, a thing that you pick up at the grocery store, just as, uh, just as it would be for us. You know, you don't necessarily always consider where every single thing uh, originates, and and yeah. you know, it's it's not as though the entire nation is complicit in this. But my goodness, the company absolutely was. Yeah. In the 1860s, some laws were put in place to govern working conditions. Um, the idea being like, oh, wow, we really need to get this sorted out. This is really awful. Uh, but it hardly helped. It mandated things like minimum wage, but it also uh, gave plantation owners expanded powers to enforce laws, which is kind of counterintuitive or, or counteractive to the spirit of this law, which is uh, to protect the workers. Because now instead of, you know, technically these beatings being illegal, if you're a, a, a British government official and you have a British uh, plantation owner coming to you and telling you this worker was trying to escape and he's being punished for that, mm-hmm. who are you going to believe? Yeah. It, in a lot of ways, didn't really help the living conditions at all of these workers. It, it, was, it was quite terrible. In 1857, there was a massive revolt throughout India for a lot of reasons. It's a, a more complicated matter than we have time to necessarily get into. Again, this is one of those things where a really simple incident kind of sparks off really long-standing, uh, deep-running resentment uh, yeah. among the, the the larger population. Um, specifically, any troops that were employed by the British government, but who were of Indian descent, <laughs> they they got these new rifles. Mm-hmm. And the way that you needed to load the rifles was to take uh, gunpowder. And rather than like the old style of like pouring powder in with like a, a powder horn, which mm-hmm. is kind of imprecise and, and things like that, they gave them these cartridges that they had to bite off with their teeth and, and pour it into the rifle. Mm-hmm. These cartridges were, uh, were sealed with animal fat. So you have Hindu troops who don't consume beef for religious reasons, and you have Muslim troops who don't consume pork for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. With commanders telling them, I don't care, you need to bite these off. <sighs> and that's where the whole thing started. Yeah. Again, the the, the underlying that's social rough. issues yeah. here are way bigger than that. But in a number of other ways, it, it's also really emblematic of the conflict between Britain and and India, which is a, a fundamental cultural misunderstanding and yeah. a, a feeling of superiority by the British in India. Mm-hmm. It's It's this very blatantly colonial racist caste system where they just have no regard for Indian uh, society whatsoever and it makes them you know a little bit brutal and they were bound to get pushback uh, at some point for sure absolutely a breaking point it took nearly a year for British troops to suppress the uprising and the fallout of it was that the British government decided to finally completely terminate the East India Company's charter in India. Okay. And they took over governance of 
colonial India, India directly. So now we're out of that weird, hazy pseudo state that India has been in for a very long time. And mm-hmm. at least we have a proper government like body. Like some concrete boundaries there yeah. in terms of localities. But unfortunately, the uh, the British government that's coming in isn't exactly that much more sympathetic to uh, the plight of the Indian people than the East India Company had been. Um, The East India Company held on until 1873 in a limited capacity, but they were essentially defunct and uh, fell apart completely. And that's the sort of um, undignified end of a very long-standing quasi-government body. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, again, all comes about partially because of tea in a somewhat indirect manner. And yet, if tea wasn't involved in all of this, it wouldn't have played out the way that it did. Yeah. The conditions of workers on these plantations was a factor. The abuse by the British, by the East India Company, was absolutely a factor. People within India knew, uh, or at least in Assam, knew what was going on. And they knew that the, uh, even if they didn't know specifics of the plantations, knew the character of uh, the British plantation owners who were uh, um, exploiting these people and... As I said, there were many other factors, but tea, tea was tea was huge among those. Mm-hmm. And with the dissolution of the East India Company, the tea plantations were left in the hands of private individuals and small companies. And that, in some ways, was a little bit better, but in a number of other ways was quite a bit worse. Yeah. Um, so I think with the East India Company falling apart, that's probably a good place to take a break. So... We'll uh, we'll pause there briefly, and uh, when we come back, talk about the uh, the development of the tea, tea plantations in India under private ownership. All right. Okay, we're back on HI one hundred and one here with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. Hi. How's your uh, How's your tea? My tea is good. That's good. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. How's your tea? Uh, getting a little cold, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. We've been going for a, a while. A bit now. lukewarm. <laughs> the British government kind of has its handful working out the whole East India Company mess, mm-hmm. and they spend quite a long time doing things like setting up colonial government offices and appointing governors and uh, <laughs> divvying up territories and all of the things that government, right. governments have to do in order to properly run a colony, and. You know, tea production in a lot of ways doesn't change at first because it's not a massive priority for the government. Assam is a relatively small region. The plantations themselves are, you know, relatively self-contained for the mm-hmm. most part. Assam's relatively remote, right? It's not yeah. it, It's not exactly central or anything like that. No. And so as long as they're still making tea... You know, the, the government's got other things that it needs to work out. Mm-hmm. India is kind of a, a special case when it comes to a colony because it's not as though it, it's not as though they found somewhere completely open and established a brand new colony. Yeah. It's also not as though they went somewhere and forcibly annexed a place and turned it into an economic colony. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other examples of places like India. I can't think of any off the top of my head where... Uh, a corporation slowly gained power in an area and was then nationalized by a foreign government, yeah. um, creating a colony that way. It's a really unique scenario. 
And it took Britain a while to figure out exactly how it was going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 interesting to look at, at timing really for Britain because at the same time that you've got Britain really establishing control directly over India, you know, that's that's 10 years away from the time that they are divesting themselves of Canada. The focus of the British government really f- switches heavily onto India, trying to figure out how this is going to work, and more importantly, how they're going to be able to exploit the continent. Right. Because they do see it as a as an incredible economic opportunity. Yeah. Um, and not just tea, but but so many other things that uh, that come out of India. And the entire time I'm reading about this this era, uh, I'm thinking about everything I've ever read from Rudyard Kipling, the the Jungle mm-hmm. Book, and all of that. Yeah. And this weird. I don't know. Have you ever actually read any of his his stuff, or have you I seen have movies? Okay. A very long time ago. But He's yeah. Uncomfortably, um, like on the nose about yeah certain things. <laughs> he's he's very well. I mean, he his one of his most famous poems is called "The White Man's Burden," mm-hmm. and it's it's got this really uh, infantile idea of of what Europe's role in in the world is, namely as a as a steward for other less developed countries, not in the sense of necessarily helping to accelerate development in places that are less developed, but more in terms of this is just the way these places are and it's your job to steward these less fortunate and less intelligent people, which is a really gross way of looking at things. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, every time I try to read his stuff, I can only get so far before it's kind of like, eh, I don't want to read this anymore. <laughs> this makes me feel sad. Yeah. But, I mean, this is this is the world, you know, 50 years later, but this is the world that he's writing about is is this this rule of a very very small number of british people over a very very large number of indian people and still seeing themselves somehow as not just superior but also entitled mm-hmm. um it's a it's a really weird power dynamic as far as the uh the tea plantations go though they did eventually get around to looking at working conditions in assam there's uh, an act passed in 1882 that yet again mandate better working conditions, give provisions to workers to actually be able to see the mm-hmm. places that they're going to be working before they sign any contracts. That'd be nice. Uh, yeah, it seems like a really basic <laughs> a starting thing, point. <laughs> it, it, it takes them, you know, nearly 50 years to get that provision God. in place. Now, again, the plantation owners can still get around it because what the act mandates is that they be able to see piece of tea territory basically they, they get to see the area mm-hmm. and the conditions in that area but it's kind of like it's kind of like one of those disclaimers where it's like this is a picture of the thing like yeah. may not be exactly as it appears sort of thing what yeah. they do is they take like the biggest like cleanest nicest village in assam mm-hmm. designate a tea territory under the act and the plantation owners bring people there oh god show that to them how nice it is have them sign it and then take them off to the plantations which are significantly worse that's so sad yeah it's 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 absolutely terrible yeah the year before this act had passed you know they the the plantation owners had seen this coming more or less and they formed what was called the indian tea association in 1881 and it was completely about protection for plantation owners and their uh, rights to exploit these workers, their rights to charge extremely low wages, their rights mm. to you know enforce workers' contracts, things like that. And it's, again, a case of you have these, these British men that are telling the government 
one thing and and the the government listening to them over the people that you know arguably they have somewhat more mandate to uh protect because a there's so many more of them just in terms of majority and b because of their vulnerable uh position in society but there's these really again terrible things that the plantation owners are saying about workers at this point in time they 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 really paint the um the nature of indian workers specifically uh bengali who are the 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 main ethnic group that they're uh getting these these workers from as as being extremely uh dishonest that they'll not only lie but maliciously lie to try and manipulate governments into uh giving them more money letting them out of work uh mm-hmm. giving them payouts for things they, they paint this picture of of you know if we give too many protections to these people they'll simply exploit it it kind of reminds you of the whole welfare queen narrative mm-hmm. where it's kind of like well we can't give people too many social securities because there are people out there who might exploit it yeah when in reality it's really really difficult to exploit and also the number of people you're harming by not giving that protection like so overwhelmingly outweighs uh the the number of people who might manage to take advantage of it that i don't understand how it's actually a conversation yeah but this is 1882 in the british raj era of of india Mm -hmm. and so no of course they're not being given out it's 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 really terrible in the year 1900 a man named sir henry cotton who was chief commissioner of assam uh went out and did a survey of these tea plantations just to find out you know how how are these reforms going into place like is is this working out mm-hmm. and he found that not only were they not necessarily uh providing a, a decent living wage for these workers but many plantation owners weren't actually paying the legally mandated minimum wage period like full stop let alone the the physical abuse that was happening the yeah. uh overreaching powers to keep people on plantations uh, or to enforce these these really long contracts things like that and wrote some really scathing reports about the condition of, of workers. And and workers really rallied behind this idea of, of Sir Cotton as being sort of a, a liberating figure. And he didn't actually end up doing like a terrible amount to really help them out. But at the same time, he was the first European figure to shine a light on just how bad all of these conditions yeah. were and, and kind of say like, this is, this is wrong. We need to do something about this. Yeah. But... You know, really what he was looking at was things like the, you know, the mortality rates and the and the disease and the living conditions. And it's all barely improved over the last 60, 70 years. It's not much better despite multiple attempts to reform things. Mm-hmm. And it, it reflects so badly on how Britain rules India in this period. And again, it's not all about tea. This is a small area, but this is representative of how... India as a whole is being treated, yeah. Uh, I think by British rulers at this point in time. Mm-hmm. We talked a very, very, very long time ago about the coffee crops on Ceylon and yep. how they had all died out to uh, a fungus. It turns out that people who owned land on Ceylon, which is today Sri Lanka, had a very similar idea to what the East India Company uh, had you know, a few decades before, which is, hey, why not tea here? Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided to make a run of it as well and were wildly successful. They started later, as I said, about 1875, they started as a competitor to, uh, competitor to Assam. And they kind of ran a similar game where they were importing Indian labor, uh, especially from regions that had been uh, undergoing famine. Mm-hmm. They used a little bit different tactics to keep 
workers uh, enslaved there. Uh, mainly uh, company store style tactics. Don't pay them enough and make goods only available through a store that you run. Allow workers to borrow against future wages in order to pay for daily necessities. And okay. presto, you have someone in debt for life. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Uh, keep some loyal, I guess. Oh, God. And, you know, meanwhile, there's all these uh, these discussions happening around, like, why aren't these workers you know, loyal, like they're not good, solid, dependable workers like a British person would be. You know, why do they resent us so much? Maybe we just have to beat them more. Uh, like, you know, oh, it's, yeah, it's, that's the answer. It's, it's, it's <laughs> weird reading them just like the level of I, I don't understand how they weren't undergoing like severe cognitive dissonance, going, yeah. you know, talking through this stuff. You can't you can't write the things that these people were writing without this 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 framework of, of European superiority. It doesn't yeah, work. for sure. But yeah, claiming that claiming that they they like working long hours or you know long long days without eating mm-hmm. or claiming that they they don't want rooms to themselves or yeah. that, like it's it's just it's weird stuff it's and bizarre. it never seems to actually ask the people working on these plantations what they think um but you know it's not always necessary we can just figure it out ourselves it's probably fine probably fine children were working uh beginning at, at the age of five oh, so good yeah if you're a if you're a worker on one of these plantations and you have children, they'll you know, they have up until five to, to be kids and then straight into the fields. Gotta start gaining that precious experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I assume if you're picking tea from the age of five, you get real good at it by the time you're... Yeah. Well, I don't know how long you actually last if you start at five. But anyways, <laughs> try not to think about that too much, huh? <laughs> by the turn of the 20th century... As much as 200 million pounds of tea were leaving India per year for Britain. Oh, wow. And again, by 1900, Ceylon had caught up to nearly the same amount of tea that was coming out of Assam. Their production grew very, very, very quickly. They were very efficient about it. Uh, Also very brutal. But the idea that Ceylon was putting out the same amount of tea as Assam was quite surprising. Mm -hmm. Average British consumption per year. Uh, had grown to as much as six pounds of tea per year. Uh, that's up from two pounds in 1850. Okay. Um, British people were drinking a lot of tea. <laughs> like, I know it's tea. a stereotype and all, but like, it comes from it somewhere. It comes from somewhere. <laughs> it's, a pretty, it's a pretty big thing. You know, the, the 20th century gets a little weird with tea. Uh, the temperance movement started touting tea as like a, an alternative to alcohol, um, <laughs> which is kind of just a thing that they do with just about everything yeah. uh, at this point in time. They kind of think anything's better than alcohol, but you can kind of see where this one's coming from. Like this whole like, well, you know, alcohol uh, makes you dumb and makes you sleepy and dulls the senses. And uh, tea, on the other hand, is, is invigorating. And <laughs> it, it keeps you alert and awake and, and sharpens the mind. You know, just the usual mm-hmm. progressive rhetoric. I mean, I feel like this is this has a little bit more legs than some of the things that they pull out at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's no like weird ice bath or whatever <laughs> nonsense they come up with man these guys got so strange with their alcohol alternatives but anyways um yeah it, it started to gain legs especially in the in the british temperance movement but you start to see it even a little bit in the united states again around this time mm-hmm. um still not the same thing as coffee it, you know it, it never really recovered from the whole tea party incident but it, it's it's uh it's at least present on the market now the dissolution of the East India Company led to what's known as the Big Four brands in tea, all founded late, like very end of the 19th century or early 20th century. Uh, Lyons, Brookbond, the Co-op—it's just called the Co-op—and hmm. Typhoo. 
And these are all brands that kind of work from a distribution model. So they're okay. they're owning plantations in India and selling into the British market. And, right. and these four really, really dominate. There was Lipton's Tea as well, uh, founded by Thomas Lipton, but he focused a lot on uh, distribution rather than production. So he okay. didn't own that many plantations, plantations. but mm-hmm. opened something like 600 stores in, you know, across Britain where he would, and these are grocery stores where he would carry like exclusively his own brand of tea. But when uh, Thomas Lipton himself was getting a little bit older, a little bit less uh, acute, the that side of the business started falling apart. And the big four were so resentful of being kept out of his stores for so long that when the Lipton stores started kind of falling apart, they didn't really give him a market to sell Lipton's tea into in Britain. And mm-hmm. it, it actually ended up being fairly unpopular in Britain. It gained some traction in North America, mm-hmm. but it's it's uh, it really didn't gain the uh, the level of popularity that you would maybe expect from a, a name that's that well known. Yeah. The Brooke Bond Company is actually kind of interesting because they um, set up this whole system or this whole promotion that's kind of like a subway card where like if you buy enough uh brook bond tea mm-hmm. that uh you you would get like vouchers either for cash or a little prize hey. or yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they, they came up with doing this and and it was wildly successful i mean people are going to drink tea anyways yeah so anything that can distinguish you in that market especially when you're one of four gigantic corporations for sure uh is really important brook bond might not sound super familiar to a lot of people but their main brand of tea was originally called uh pregest tea the idea being that they were really going to play on that whole like tea helps your digestion digestion angle of things right Mm -hmm. um pre just T, the P and G were shortened up to PG, and mm-hmm. then they called it PG Tips. Have you ever heard of that brand of tea? I don't think so. They had this, they had this advertising campaign for decades uh, that was based entirely on chimpanzees drinking tea, <sighs> which was wildly successful. <laughs> very, very, very successful in Britain. I can kind of understand why. That sounds like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So yeah, people would be a little bit more likely to know the PG Tips name than than Brook Bond, mm-hmm. but their whole thing of doing these promotions kind of set off uh, uh, a trend of doing that with tea, and not all of them were necessarily as uh, savory as Brook Bond's promotions. Right. Uh, specifically, there was this trend of what was known as pension teas, which were uh, these teas that if you bought them and saved up enough little proof of purchases, they promised that for anyone who who purchased this tea and had enough vouchers, if a woman's husband died, they would pay out a, uh, a widow's pension of 25 pounds per year. Okay. Which is not bad at this point in time. Mm-hmm. It's not a ton, but it's a big help. And hey, if you're buying tea anyways, yeah, why not? The most famous one that did this was, was called Nelson & Company. As great as this sounds, it's important to realize that uh, it was essentially a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. They would take profits from increased sales, pay it out to some of these uh, widows who had signed up you know, early enough for these pensions, yeah. and use them talking about how great it was getting these pensions to increase sales again. But uh, pyramid schemes inevitably fail and collapse, and when Nelson and company folded, uh, there was this huge lawsuit, of course, and they... Uh, they figured out that they owed 
30 million dollars worth of pensions when it collapsed the company had about twenty thousand pounds on hand yeah but stuff never was that great so the promotions didn't always go super well for the teas Mm -hmm. but for, for the ones that were on the up and up it wasn't necessarily a bad way to distinguish yourself in this market yeah the indian tea association uh by the early 20th century had started appointing uh their first science officers which were hired on to help increase the yield of tea crops as much as possible to in turn increase profits because Mm -hmm. the more tea you can uh, grow on a single acre the more money you're going to make i mean you can only pluck so much tea at a time right Mm -hmm. and tea growth really turned into uh, a very exact science at this point in time Uh, you start looking at various uh, experiments with different fertilizers to figure out which gives you the fastest and best yield you start looking at really questioning the the fundamentals of how tea is being grown how close together can we pack tea plants Mm -hmm. Um, how much sun do they need how much water do they need they start playing around with things like uh, grafting for tea uh, trees rather than simply taking the best yielding trees collecting seeds and planting from them right just take grafts from the best uh, growing trees and uh, graft them into other tea plants, and those are going to hmm. yield the same. I mean, they're they're genetically clones, right? Yeah. It's the same thing that they do with most fruit varietals. I mean, mm-hmm. apple varietals especially. This is is um, famous for for growing this way. Yeah. But um, that was actually developed in in uh, Japan initially in the oh. in the nineteenth century, grafting uh, cool. tea trees for the best uh, the best yields. But it was it was brought over into India. And to give you an idea of how how well this starts working when indian tea started in the uh, in the 1830s they were happy to get between uh, 100 and 200 pounds per acre per year okay by the 1880s they finally hit a thousand pounds per acre in ceylon and that was like that was considered like a high water mark no one ever thought that they would get as much as a thousand pounds of tea yeah. out of an acre by the 1940s they were regularly pulling 1500 pounds of tea per acre so like just exponential growth in yeah. in, in yield in crop yeah. yield in 1908 the tea bag was accidentally invented by thomas sullivan <laughs> uh, have you ever heard about this before no tea up to this point had basically always been brewed the same way it's it's loose tea leaves into a teapot you let it steep and you pour into teacups right mm-hmm. this was or this necessitated a tea trade that was based very heavily on the grade of tea which is like hey how good of a job have they done at picking out the dust and the stems and things like that how big are the leaves how big is it cut mm-hmm. um things like that because a tea that was really finely chopped wouldn't steep as nicely and uh you would get a lot more dregs in the actual tea itself yeah thomas sullivan is sending out samples of this tea that he started and he sends them out in silk bags and you know, before this, people had started using those metal infusers, you know, yeah. the, the balls with the, the holes in them, mm-hmm. just to make cleanup easier, basically, but still yeah. essentially the same thing as as uh, steeping it in the pot. Well, he starts getting orders for this tea and then complaints about the orders saying, well, I want some more of those infuser bags that you were sending those in. <laughs> and he was just sending out samples in like what he thought was just like nice packaging. Yeah. But people saw it, thought of the the um, metal infusers. Yeah. And started steeping the, the silk the bags. bags. And mm-hmm. they kind of went, you know, it doesn't work that good, but I kind of like the idea. And Thomas Sullivan went, yes, that's what I meant to do with that. 
that's exactly what they were meant for and you know started working on different materials and trying to figure out what yeah. would work a little bit better than silk because it wasn't a great yeah system but that's that hilarious was the birth of the tea bag and and that that really helped to usher tea back into the united states because it's a heck of a lot easier doing that than yeah the whole song and dance of steeping tea leaves in a in a teapot and having the entire tea service with the tray and the yeah all the pageantry that goes along with it and you know there's records of british people being just horrified at the idea of (laughs) tea bags and you know in tepid water and just 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 funny atrocious to them but what the tea bag opens up is a market for low-grade tea Mm -hmm. because high-grade tea can still be packaged as loose leaf it can still be marketed towards this british population that expects tea to be done a certain way yeah and then the rest of it can be uh chopped much more finely it can include dust it's not a big deal and it all gets put into a tea bag because when you steep the tea uh none of that gets into the tea itself you just pull it back out and you throw it out yeah and all of a sudden this tea that was basically considered garbage i mean they would send shipments of good tea mm-hmm. packed in just like crap tea leaves they would use it as 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 basically like those those styrofoam popcorn things. yes yeah they would they would pack the tea in it so that it survived the journey properly it was garbage mm-hmm. all of a sudden there's a market for that <laughs> um partially because of less refined palates but partially because the the tea bag is much more forgiving with uh with brewing tea yeah and you know, it, it kind of means the beginning of the end of, of grading teas. Mm-hmm. That's still a thing that happens and it didn't go away right away. But, um, you know, it, it really changes the way that people make tea. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, Tetley's tea is essentially built entirely mm-hmm. on the concept of the tea bag. There wasn't really uh, a viable uh, loose leaf Tetley, Tetley's market that was all very American. It was all very much based on the tea bag. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the marketing that ends up going around that is like, well, this is the perfect amount of tea. Like, you know, there's a specific time on there. It's really easy to make. It's no muss, no fuss. And, you know, simplifies the whole process, makes it a little bit more accessible, takes a little bit of the classism out of it yeah. uh, to some extent. Yeah. But still, it's, it's, a, it's a very different tea experience than has been common for well over a thousand years since, uh, since uh, people started uh, drying and cutting tea rather than keeping it in blocks. Mm-hmm. So, quite a long time. In World War One, tea rations had to become a thing because there were uh, um, blockades put up on on British trade. Right, yeah. the Germans were using submarines to to destroy merchant ships that were coming in. Mm-hmm. Some of those merchant ships were carrying tea, so they had to ration it out. Mm-hmm. Um, the storehouses of all these big companies. Uh, were raided and the government basically nationalized the tea uh, industry for those four years took and just mixed all the tea together which outraged some people and the the ration was two ounces of tea uh, per week per adult which only makes you a cup and a half of good tea a day which I mean what are we barbarians yeah. like we're at war here but like, yeah. people, people were really upset about the amount of tea they were getting it oh, was really boy. bad for morale yeah um which is kind of, again, it sounds like a stereotypical thing, but like it, it had a significant impact. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't yeah. until later in the war that they had to put the ration in place, but it was hard on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, people tried to make their tea kind of stretch a little bit longer to like two or three cups a day, but like it was really weak tea when you did it that way. Yeah. And just like it wasn't working out for anybody. So when you get to World War II, Again, there is a tea ration that's put in place after about 1940 or so, once uh, Axis forces take control of the, the Mediterranean, because, 
you want that tea coming up the Suez Canal through the Mediterranean uh, yeah. from India, right? Once that trade route is lost, back to tea rations. Fortunately, there was a lot more tea stockpiled in Britain. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a couple authors talking about the fact that Britain was basically very lucky that none of their storehouses were hit by the oh, bombing raids. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> because that would have been disastrous. I don't know if maybe that would have just turned the tide of the war sooner because they would have been so outraged. Yeah. Like, I, no, it, it would have been, it would have been a, a you know, it, it was a war that was so much about morale that yeah. I, I, it would have Riots it would have had a streets. major effect one way or the other. I don't know which way, um, but for the most part, tea remained available. the The rations were a little bit higher than World War One level. You were talking two and a half, maybe three ounces a week, mm-hmm. which helps. It's still cut back from what people would naturally uh, drink in Britain, but it, it was a little bit better. What's mm-hmm. more, they uh, used rationing in World War Two as a bit of an incentive for certain roles in society because there was so much mobilization. Um, so positions that were deemed more important to the war effort were occasionally rewarded with extra rations of things like tea or, you know, things like sugar or, mm-hmm. or coffee or what have you. Uh, but tea was one of the main incentives for getting people more active and more engaged with the war effort. Yeah. Um, up to and including rewarding workers who had higher than average production with extra tea rations that week. (laughs) Um, And it worked quite well. This time the the brands were maintained, like they didn't take all the tea and mix it together. Yeah. Um, It was to the point where there were ministers talking about how the preservation of those brands was important to national morale, Mm -hmm. uh, that people still would be able to buy, you know, the the brands that they enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, the idea that that something that's you know that was originally considered a, a luxury good could be considered that essential to mm-hmm. um, uh, war morale. Uh, yeah, it's, it's you know everyone was tightening their belts on a lot of different on a lot of different things. The idea that tea wasn't one that they were willing to to uh, give too much of. Yeah, uh, says a lot about it. The the war rationing actually continued for for several years after the war. Uh, not a lot of people realize, but it, it went on until the early fifties, and tea rationing was part of that. So, tea drinking declined somewhat because people got into a bit of a, a rhythm with the the slightly lower availability. Mm-hmm. Never quite hit that same level at the beginning of the twentieth century. Yeah, but it's it's still very much uh, a a part of. British culture in, mm-hmm. in a major way. Yeah. Again, it, it, it just feels like I'm harping on on uh, on stereotypes here, but it's, it's true <laughs> that the numbers don't lie. The amount of tea that was being consumed. I, I mean, we went from 200 million pounds of tea a year from India uh, at the beginning of the, the century up to 650 million pounds of tea uh, per year in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And that's just India. That's not counting Ceylon, which nearly matches it blow for blow. Yeah. That's a lot of tea. That's a lot of tea. <laughs> So it really sounds like everything's on the up and up with tea, but we kind of left India behind a little bit. It's not as though things got better mm-hmm. as soon as Sir Cotton released his uh, reports on worker conditions. In fact, Indian relations with its British government or with their British government, yeah, they they, they never really got that much better, uh, despite the heavy military presence that was kind of um, suppressing them to some extent. In the 1920s, there was a particularly uh, inflammatory incident where a plantation owner wanted to marry the daughter of one of his workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was 
again, like we talked about earlier, kind of common. In fact, some plantation owners would lure uh, women to work on their plantations by either um, promising to marry them themselves and like talking about like how wealthy they are, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, and then just kind of putting them out in the fields, yeah. or promising them to um, other like imaginary people that don't even exist, uh, but other other Indians who worked on the plantation. This person made so much money, but he's looking for a bride. Like, you know, you can come and work here, and and he'll, you know, I've I've talked to him, and he's going to marry you. Right. That was one of the that was one of uh, one of the issues that uh, Sir Cotton found was that people were being uh, lured in by promises of marriage, but. Anyways, this this plantation owner wanted to marry this girl. She didn't want to marry him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, like any reasonable person would do, he shot and killed her father. Oh, good. Yeah, because that's nice. proportional. Oh, yeah. I don't see a problem there. <laughs> the real problem there is that when this went to court, he was acquitted. Really? I mean... I it was appealed. Be... It was appealed and it went to a higher court. And at the higher court, he was convicted of murder, which is the thing that he did. Yeah. That's that's what you call that. Yep. But the fact that the first court didn't, you can kind of see why people might have been a little bit upset. Yep. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. This, by the way, is the time frame where uh, Gandhi begins to be politically active okay and he had a lot to say about what was going on on these plantations about this specific incident okay and it was a big deal as many as eight thousand workers in assam just walked off of their plantations oh wow basically said i've had enough with this good for them this is this is this is egregious and i mean gandhi obviously goes on to to agitate for the next 30 years Uh, more more like 20 actually but that was one of his uh, relatively early uh, political actions was encouraging the uh, the the resistance uh, against um, British plantation owners yeah. in Assam, and rightfully so. Yeah, the British the the last thirty years or so of of British rule in India are no easier to talk about than the rest of the time that they were there. Mm-hmm. It's not as though there was just a nice kind of gradual liberalization of of British government in India. They hang on tightly to rule in India. I mean, after after World War One, when all of these other nations are getting their their independence and everyone's talking about self determination for nation states and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the exact same time as as Britain is backing all of these places who want this this self determination, they're at the same time putting down revolts in India um, that are coming from exactly uh, what they're claiming to support, which is uh, groups of people who feel that they, as a as a discrete nation, uh, deserve their own state, they deserve their own government, they deserve their own laws. Yeah. And Britain kind of said no, and you know when when you look at which states. Britain said yes to you and which ones they say no to there is a distinct pattern uh based on skin color of of uh which ones they're uh, yeah. they're okay with letting go on their own um India no they they kind of held on for dear life again don't really have uh the time or or the um uh knowledge to get into this uh responsibly but uh in 1947 India finally gains its independence from uh, from Britain, um, mm-hmm. largely thanks to the the efforts of Gandhi, and just the next year, Ceylon uh, gains its independence as well. Okay. This kind of 
worried tea producers a little bit, especially because one of the things that Gandhi had been talking about was nationalizing tea production. (laughs) So you went from the vast majority of of, uh, plantation owners uh, being uh, being British to you know, maybe 30% of uh, acreage being owned by British holdings because they kept talking about nationalizing all of the tea uh, yeah. uh, plantations. And, and, and so British uh, interests pull out of India in a big way, become uh, purchasers only. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, they finally do actually private or uh, uh, nationalize tea plantations, anything over 50 acres, which is really not a very big tea plantation. Uh, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So in the mid seventies, you have Sri Lanka. Well, it becomes Sri Lanka in, uh, in 1972, but Ceylon becomes more important than, than India in terms of, uh, tea production for the first time in a long time, just because the, the plantations turn from a whole bunch of really big plantations that are owned by these huge corporations into just thousands of little tiny plantations that are owned by, you know, small farmers, basically. And that kind of distribution network really doesn't, it's, it's not the same sort of machine that those big ones are. And it doesn't really have the same level of output as those, as those big companies can, can put out. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still tea coming out of India, but not nearly at as, as quick a rate. And tea planting kind of explodes globally. You get plantations in uh, Kenya becomes especially important. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they attempted in Brazil. Tea kind of spreads worldwide. There's really no reason it shouldn't have much earlier than it actually did right other than tradition mainly yeah um which isn't something that needs to be you know dismissed but at the same time there's a lot of places in the world that are approximately the same temperate zone as assam is yeah there's a lot of options there (laughs) but the british government had a good thing going in india for the british yeah, for the British, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and they they really saw no reason to uh, to let up until they absolutely had to. And as you know, an independent concern, it was impossible to compete with the prices that were being offered by these uh, these Indian vendors uh, prior to independence, because it was essentially being performed by slave labor, which tends to keep your prices really reasonable. Yeah. So with the independence of India, um, tea production kind of decentralizes. It kind of goes global. Sri Lanka becomes really important. China comes back on the the, uh, playing field for the first time in a long time. They've had a rough couple of decades. Yeah. Uh, They've been through a number of revolutions. Uh, They had to sit through Mao's economic plans, which... Yeah, you know, that's a that's a whole different that's thing. That's a whole different topic. Let, let's say they didn't really go quite as well as planned. No. Um, <laughs> geez, you know, as far as far as Mao's concerned, it's like it's it's not even it's not even the usual dictator stuff where it's like, oh, you're a horrible guy, but like you were trying for like a really singular goal. It was like with Mao, it's always like, what were you even thinking? Yeah. Why would you do that? That's so wrongheaded. Yeah. I can't contr- I, I can't run a country. I don't know enough to run a country. I know the stuff he was doing was definitely not going to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the whole sparrow hunt. Do you remember that part? No. So they were, they were having problems with too many sparrows. So he put out like a bounty on 
on sparrows and people were hunting sparrows uh but sparrows eat locusts oh man and so he essentially um <sighs> like tripled the population of locusts yeah and, and, <laughs> and artificially uh uh started a, a famine because yeah. all the crops were I, I mean that was one of the things that that started this famine was all of the crops were decimated by locusts because there were no sparrows left to eat them all oh my god because he felt like there were too many sparrows like come on Mao, what are you doing man <laughs> It's, it's been interesting to see the, the Communist Party distance themselves from Mao yeah. over the years and the way they've had to kind of make that make sense. And, you know, to their credit, they've, they've done about as graceful a job as you can do with something like that. But, yeah, that's, that's, some, that's some rough history to kind of yeah. reinvent yourself around. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a difficult period for, yeah. for China. I've read an autobiography by someone who, like, lived through that period like grew up in that like as a child do you remember what it's called i may have read the same one son of the revolution I yeah, think. yeah 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 it's very good it's so good heartbreaking yeah but it's so so sad to read that but it's really eye-opening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um in any case they kind of get back into the tea game around this time and at, at the risk of getting a little bit closer to present day than i normally do you know by uh, the 90s or so, the uh, the green tea fad really kind of kicks back in. And for the first time in a very, very long time, the Western world discovers just how delicious green tea can be. <laughs> uh, mainly because somebody finally taught them how to brew it correctly. How to brew it, yeah. Um, and that's really where, where China shines because it hasn't lost that art of uh, producing proper green tea um, because it was there all along. Mm-hmm. We just kind of stopped trading with them. <laughs> Well, with the opium wars and whatnot and all that nonsense <laughs> um i think that's probably a, a really good place to to stop in terms of kind of coming full circle china's once again back in the tea game <laughs> and you know as i said i i don't really like getting that much closer to uh to present day but man tea showing yeah. up just like all the places you shouldn't be i know getting in so much trouble <laughs> such an innocuous drink and just kind of and yet so rebellious so rebellious any any comments any questions what did, what did you think that was amazing <laughs> i learned a lot more than i was expecting to from that like i didn't expect it to really like sprawl out into as many directions as it did yeah but it's really fascinating to see how that works because now in hindsight it's like oh yeah that makes sense actually how like you know x and y are connected in that sense and whatnot mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. really interesting yeah i i mean it's i find that a lot of times there's, there's things in history where if you're looking for a, a, a nice, simple explanation for it and people can't easily give it to you, yeah, um, the answers are like a lot harder to work out, but in a lot of cases, a lot more interesting. Yeah. And context is everything for stuff like that. For sure. So when it comes to something like, hey, why did World War II start? It's like, well, I can, I can pretty, you know, yeah. there's some pretty direct, like short term things going on there we can we can get to the bottom of it pretty easily it's it's fairly well known things like that why did the opium war start it's always been such a kind of yeah i know that they happened but kind of this hazy concept of of kind of mercantilism and yep. and and british dominance in the area but like researching this it kind of clicks in where it's like oh this is this is like embarrassingly simple. That's the reason that the the answer isn't coming out. It's not even because it's so overly complicated. Yeah. And not to oversimplify things. There's a lot of factors going in, but it's like, man, a big chunk of that was just like British people liked tea a lot. It was <laughs> like so much that it was 
causing a national crisis. <laughs> yeah. What was what was Britain doing in India anyway? Oh, it's because there 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 was a nationalized company or a, or a government sponsored company that did such a bad job of running <laughs> the country to make tea and opium that the government <laughs> had to step in. What? Yeah. Are you sure that's what happened in history? Yeah, that's that's what happened. It's so bizarre. It's it's strange, and I've said this on the show before, but like wars start for such dumb reasons. Yeah. Nine times out of ten. Or start for dumb, dumb reasons. And that goes for specific, you know, couple year long conflicts, but also for these these odd overarching, you know, power plays that happen. Yeah. A lot of the times it's not for like big noble storybook style uh, motivations. It's for dumb stuff like, wow, we really like tea. Oh, shoot, this got out of control. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, I... I I knew when we selected this topic that it was going to go some interesting places. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few of these things that were as much of a surprise to me as, as they were to uh, to you hearing about them. So it was, a, yeah. it was a lot of fun to put together. And I'm awesome. really glad we got to talk about it today. Yeah, me too. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. It's overly simple to call tea the cause of Britain's East Asian policies in the 19th century, or to blame British rule in India on tea, or to point to abuses of Indian workers by tea plantation owners as the cause of unrest that led to India's independence. However, it did play a strong enough role in all of these major events that it certainly affected the course of each, and for a beverage to play such an important role in history is almost unbelievable. Next time on HI101, We have a first for the show. We're going to be returning to a previous topic to continue our discussion of historical conspiracy theories. That episode will be up on March 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.